Well, Eliphaz has attempted to correct Job's thinking in chapters 5 and 6 of the book of Job. Eliphaz tells Job that he may be a righteous man, but trouble does not come from thin air. So as good as you may be or as good as you think you are, no one can be righteous before God. You must have done something wrong. And if you would just repent, then you would experience restoration. And that's why those first two chapters in the book of Job were so important that taught us and showed us that this would be an incorrect assessment made by these friends. That we know that Job is blameless. We know that he is not being punished for hidden sins. He's not being punished for some kind of insignificant sin, but rather this is a trial. This is a test of Job's faith as well as it is a test of God who has been accused that he is too good and too generous uh, to his people. And since Job does not accept Eliphaz's instruction, as we saw Job respond to that in chapters 6 and 7, then what we see is that the next friend steps up to the plate and gives his attempt to try to correct Job. That friend's name is Bildad. And so Bildad in chapter 8 now is going to take his shot at explaining to Job the very problem. And one of the things that we will notice as we study Job is that the intensity of the friend's statements and the ferocity of what they say only grows as each one takes a turn. And we'll begin to see that here as Bildad begins to speak. We'll look at a little bit of what Bildad says and more of what Job says. Again, with it being three chapters, it makes it difficult to be able to read all of it, but we'll certainly go through it and observe the things that they're saying so that then we can take a look at what Bildad is saying and what makes that incorrect. We'll look at what Job says and what we learn from him and then more importantly what we learn about God in regards to our suffering, in regards to our faith. Let's uh, take our beginning point then at chapter 8, verse 1. Job 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words? out of their understanding. There's the beginning of Bildad's great speech. I think it's important to keep in mind where Bildad is coming from. And as you read Bildad's speech and you listen to what he says, we recognize that Bildad is not interested in comforting Job, even though we saw at the end of chapter 2, it said that they had all come to comfort him and sympathize with him. But the words of what Job says here, what Bildad says to Job, is certainly not comforting in his, in his suffering, but rather this is another instance of this retribution theology. And we've talked about that quite a bit and we're going to discuss it still a few more times going ahead because this is really one of the key foundations that the book of Job 
wants to destroy. And it is a basis by which these three friends constantly speak. Retribution theology is simply this. You take like what the Bible says, the Proverbs say it, Galatians says it, all kinds of passages say God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. And then you turn that and run it the opposite direction and say, therefore, if you are blessed, you must be righteous. And if you are suffering or if you are cursed, you must therefore be wicked. That is retribution theology. That if I'm experiencing good times and good things, and that must mean I'm a good person. And if I'm going through bad things and suffering, then I must have done something wrong. And this is what Bildad is basically saying. And he begins by just calling him a windbag in verse 2. You see him just, just outright lay it out in verse 2. These are the words of your mouth be a great wind. Unfortunately, this won't be the only time they call him a windbag. They're going to call him that quite a few times. Here's the first instance where he just basically says, you're a windbag. We are tired of listening to all the things that you have to say. And Bildad's point is very simple. God doesn't pervert justice, does he? And of course, Job's going to answer no. And everybody who reads that's going to answer no. Of course, God does not pervert justice. So therefore, Job, if you keep claiming your innocence, then what you are doing is saying that God is not just. This is the very basis of his whole argument. You can't say that you're innocent. You can't say that you're righteous because bad things only happen to bad people, Job. So if bad things happen to you as they did, it's evident that you're not innocent. It is evident that you are not righteous. And so that's what Bildad does is basically doubt all of his innocence. It's pretty strong there in verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. I mean, wow. What did just happen to his children, but they had all been killed. And Bildad comes along and goes, well, they got what they deserve. If they sinned, they were delivered into the hand of their transgression. And then continues it through verse 6 to say, You have a problem also and you need to seek the Lord and you need to plead for your case and you need to repent and you need to be pure and upright. And if you would only plead for the Almighty for mercy, then God would rouse Himself and then He would restore you. But Bildad's saying, you can't be innocent. I know you're not innocent. It's the reason why your children died and it's the reason why you are suffering. And so then he basically slanders him in verses 8 through 10 and says... Your whole problem, Job, is you lack understanding. You don't understand what God is doing, and you don't understand this obvious wisdom. And that's what I think is quite curious about verses 8 through 10, where he basically says in verse 9, you know, we are but of yesterday and know nothing. Basically, you know, we're just a vapor. We're just uh, just here for a moment. But the wisdom that I'm giving to you has been around for centuries. And you're going up against the clear and obvious wisdom that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And so, okay, we've been around a short time in our lifetimes here, but this has been the long-standing wisdom for centuries and centuries and centuries. Job, everybody understands this. And thus, in the rest of the way, in verses 11 through 22, what he's just basically going to say is that you're going to wither because you are not connected to God. And notice, notice in verse 13, such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. The reason why you have suffered, Job, is because you have forgotten God. 
and the godless have no hope. Therefore, Job, I hear you saying how you are hopeless. We saw that in his words. We saw it in chapter 3. We saw it in chapter 6 and 7 where he's talking about there's no light at the end of the tunnel. It's all darkness. I don't see any way out. And Bildad's solution is I want you to understand something. If you feel hopeless in your life, that means you're godless. Interesting conclusions that he's drawing here. You must be a sinner. You must be suffering for what you've done. You must have forgotten God. And those who forget God perish. And the hope of the godless completely are wiped out. So therefore, if you feel hopeless, you therefore must be godless. In fact, he draws that very strongly in verse 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man nor take his hand of evildoers. He doesn't reject the blameless, and he certainly doesn't cast his lot and strengthen evildoers. So what does that mean you are, Job? That's what he's just trying to get at to him again and again and again. A very simple and very concise theology that he presents to him that, Job, it is obvious that you have done something wrong, and your your words are just hot air to be able to say that you are innocent. Now, I want to talk about what he teaches here for a minute, because it is something that I believe we will need to retrace and hammer on many, many times, because this kind of retribution theology thinking is so common. It is so easy for us to default into it. And that's why I think you have all the friends rehearsing it again and again and again. Because we need this reminder again and again and again. You might have heard the ways we often will speak of retribution theology. We'll say something like this. Well, what uh, goes around comes around. That's retribution theology right there, is that, well, you're uh, going to get what you deserve. If you do something wrong, you will get what you deserve. What goes up must come down. We have all kinds of cliches and sayings that we try to lay that out, that you get what you deserve. And so look at your circumstances. You must have done something wrong that these things are happening to you. And I think that's an important thing for us to consider for a moment, because sometimes we will speak like that when other people are suffering or they are going through bad times. And maybe if we are not so emboldened like Bildad here to say it to their face, how often do we think it in our mind? Well, what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. What goes up must come down. You know, that's the way things go. You know, we have all kinds of sayings like that. And sometimes... We will choose to think that about other people. Or even we will allow the trial to cause that to think about ourselves. Well, I must have done something wrong. Something must have gone wrong. And this is basically another way of describing karma. This is what karma is pretty much all about. And the reason why we gravitate to retribution theology and karma is because it attempts to try to control the future. We want to try to control the future, and so here's how we will control it. If I do good things today, that means good things will happen to me in the future. That's what karma is. Do enough good deeds now and have enough good intentions today, and I'm like storing up future happiness out there somewhere, so that's why I keep doing good. However, if I have evil intentions and do bad 
deeds, then it's going to catch up to me one day. And eventually what goes around comes around and you're going to get what you deserve and it's all going to catch up with you one day. And I hope that it wouldn't take very long for us to realize that that is not a principle that God teaches, nor is it observable in life. How many people do you know live wicked from start to finish and they prosper from start to finish? And how many people do you know are righteous from start to finish and yet to suffer from start to finish? It doesn't take long to realize this is not an observable phenomenon that we would say, well, every time you do something wrong, if I just sit back and wait long enough, there'll be something to get you. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be next week, but it's going to get you one of these days. That's not a principle that is in the scriptures and it's not how God runs the universe. And that's really important because sometimes that's how we want to explain how the universe is run. And we want to put God in that box and say, well, that's the way things go. And that sometimes leads to our anxiety and angst about things because we have even songs in our songbook about how we see the wicked are prospering while the righteous are suffering year after year. And I don't understand what's going on. Well, part of that is because we have this karma retribution theology concept that we are struggling with. Well, how can that be? But God has not laid out any kind of law that says that it's not observable in life. In fact, that is why those Eastern religions like Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism, they require reincarnation to try to carry this out because it's not observable in this life. So therefore, you're piling up all of your good deeds so that when you are reincarnated, you will be a wonderful butterfly. And then you will enjoy whatever all the good things a butterfly can be. And you won't have the bad things. But if you do terrible bad things, I don't know what that means. Pick the animal you don't like. I don't know what that turns you into. Uh, You don't get to be a butterfly. You're a... uh, a mutt in the in the you know that's in the junkyard or something I don't know but that's what this is all about is well since we can't prove it here we need reincarnation to make karma work and that's why Eastern religions do that because it's not observable here it's not provable here it doesn't work out to say if you do good for the next year let's say you do good for all of 2017 that means 2018 is going to go swimmingly for you it's just not true. It's absolutely false. But we do that because we want to try to control the future. It's an attempt by which we can say, I'm somehow able to control the future. And more importantly, why we want that is because if we see somebody suffer randomly, we want to be able to say, well, the reason why they're suffering randomly is because they did something wrong and I'm not doing something wrong and therefore that won't happen to me. We somehow try to make ourselves feel better about the future that they must have done something wrong and that's why that fell upon them and I'm not doing wrong so I don't have to worry about that. And so we like to be self-righteous and justify ourselves but the scriptures do not teach that. The world doesn't run like that. The tragedy that just happened on Friday, you can't sit back and go, well, they must have done something wrong in Fort Lauderdale. No, that has nothing to do with anything. That's not how the universe is set up. That's not the way God runs things. 
And this is what the book of Job is setting up. Bildad is certain. Job, you must have done something wrong. It's the only explanation why all these bad things are happening to you. And that's why we just comb through those first two chapters so carefully to go, he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he turns from evil. There's not a mark on him that you would be able to point to his life and say, well, that must be the reason why. God validates Job and says, that's my servant Job. He is upright. He is blameless. And so Bildad doesn't know that. And he thinks he has all the answers. But it's important for us that we disabuse ourselves of this idea of retribution theology and karma. So in looking at God, this is not a system that we can look at God and say, I will be punished in this life if I do bad things, or I am certainly going to be rewarded in this life if I do good things. It Doing good doesn't mean that you have a good life. It, we just want this so bad because we think we'll have control of the future. But think about all the problems that this sets up in this principle of saying, well, this is how God operates. Listen to like 1 Peter 4 and verse 19. And notice how this blows up retribution theology. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You just took the two concepts. You're suffering for doing good. Keep doing good while you're suffering. It just annihilates karma and retribution theology. He says people are going to suffer. And he says, if you're doing good and doing righteous, you're going to suffer. Jesus said that to his own disciples. You're going to suffer for following me. You're going to suffer for righteousness sake. So we must ingrain that into our minds that just because something bad happens to us or just because we suffer or just because something goes wrong does not mean that we have done something wrong. A flat tire tomorrow does not mean you did something bad. And just because all the traffic lights turn green tomorrow does not mean you were righteous. That is not how it works. But think about so many people operate like that. People operate that way. They think God runs the universe that way. And then they attempt to make decisions in their life based upon that. Well, God obviously didn't want me to go to such and such because I got a flat tire on the way. That's not how God operates. That's not what God is doing. And yet so often that's how people try to understand how God runs the universe. And so Job is here. This book is here to try to blow that up. And so we're going to do this a lot of weeks because it just seems to be inherent within us to want to gravitate to that idea that well then if i'm suffering that must mean or because things are good that must mean and and this book is trying to just get rid of that from our thinking altogether that brings us to job's response in chapters 9 and 10 let's let's listen to what job says powerful words by job brilliant words by what job says and then also interesting words as well chapter 9 Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise and hard and mighty in strength. He who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains 
And they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on and I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger beneath him. Uh, bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser if, someone, if, some, if I summoned him. And he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, I would prove he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, then who Then who is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reeds, like eagles swooping on the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put on off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take away his rod from me Let him, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I am not so in myself. Powerful words that, that, that Job says here. Let's get a sense of what he says. In the first couple of verses, Job begins by just saying, Bildad, I agree with your concepts. I agree that God does not reject the blameless. I know those things. I know that God is just. He does not reject the blameless. But this first half of this scene is really Job expressing how he really has no way to make a case before God. And that's what he's doing in describing the power of God from verse 3 all the way to, to verse 13 and describing the power of moving mountains and shaking the earth and commanding the sun. Just on and on he goes about the power of God and the whole idea is who can stand before God? How could I even begin to make my case? I have no basis to be able to make an appeal who can stand before God. He is too mighty. He is too great. He can remove mountains. He can, he can just move the earth and change it all. I have no way to approach Him in the slightest. And so His idea then is apparently God doesn't know that, that I am righteous. But if I wanted to appeal to God, there's no way for me to do it. Now, 
Eliphaz and Bildad keep saying, you need to appeal to God. And what they're saying is appeal to God for mercy. Confess your sin. See if God will tell you what your sin is so that you can be forgiven. And Job goes, I do want to make my appeal to God, but not for mercy because I have not sinned. I am blameless, but I want to make my appeal to God that says, I am righteous. But the problem is, God seems unapproachable. How can I begin to make my case before God? Verse 14, how then can I answer him choosing my words with him? How can I be able to say anything before him? In fact, verses 16 through 20 just says, I can't even come into his presence. Even if it were given me the opportunity to come into the presence of God, that would not go well for me at at, at all. Verse 19, if it's a contest of strength, Behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? And though I am in the right, verse 20, my own mouth would condemn me. And though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Basically, if I stood in the presence of God, that wouldn't go well for me. It doesn't matter how righteous I am. God is so mighty. God is so powerful. He would overwhelm me and I would look like a fool and my mouth would condemn me. Now, there's a lot of irony in that. Because remember, when we get to the very end and God does come on the scene, Job is going to do the, I have said too much. <laughs> There's a little bit of irony here that Job says that if I had my chance before God, he would prove me foolish. Yep, you're right. <laughs> you're absolutely right about that. He grasps something about the nature of God. He says, I'm righteous and I'm suffering innocently, but what can I possibly do about it? I can't stand before him. If I were to have my approach before him, that would not go well for me. I can't stand in his presence. There's no way to respond to him. And so he does have a very good sense of God in that. He doesn't act like, well, I'd just go in there and tell God what's up and that would be all said and done and that'd be the end of it all. That's not the way he approaches it. He goes, I need to be able to make my appeal, but I know that wouldn't go well for me if I did. I know that I can't stand before him. He is mightier than I. He is greater than I. And thus he describes throughout chapter 9 all of his power. That's why when you get to the end of chapter 9, you'll notice like in verse 21 and 22, he just basically says, I I just feel resignation and doom. I am blameless, but I will not regard myself. I loathe my life. I've, I've been righteous and I'm blameless, but... You know, I'm doomed. I have no regard for myself in in these things. Now, one of the things that he says here that is quite sharp is there in verse 22. It is all one. Therefore, I say he speaking of God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. So it doesn't matter if you're righteous, doesn't matter if you're wicked, God destroys them both. But before you get really antsy on Job, remember the writer of Ecclesiastes said the exact same thing. The writer of Ecclesiastes looks at life and says, I look at life and I don't see a difference between the righteous and the wicked. And we just did the same thing in our exercise of retribution theology. If I were to step back and look at the world and say, does it always go well for the righteous? No. Does it always go bad for the wicked? No. And that's what Job is observing here is the righteous and the wicked are all crushed by God. Because he's looking at his own life and saying, my blamelessness hasn't put me a leg up above the wicked. I'm getting hit and suffered and beaten down by God just like if I were a wicked person. And so he's observing that. And now he gets very strong in verse 23 when he says, so when disaster brings its sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. He laughs at the despair of the innocent. God does not care about what is going on with the righteous. There is no justice 
justice whatsoever. That's what verse 24 describes. That he covers the faces of the judges. Therefore, there cannot be justice. There cannot be righteousness on earth. There is no justice going on because he looks at himself and says, I'm righteous and I'm suffering. And so he just continues to say, I'm not going to make it much longer than verses 25, 26. My life is slipping away. And I love what he does in verses 27 and 29 when he basically says, you know, I could put off into verse 27. I could put off my sad face and be of good cheer, but that's not going to help either. You know, how many times has that been the counsel that you've been given in your trial? Hey, just put on a happy face. It'll be okay tomorrow. And Job goes, yeah, I could do that, but it won't be okay tomorrow. <laughs> you know, that, that's pretty useless uh, counsel to, as well. And he says, sure, I could do that. We could all sit around and pretend that everything's going to be okay, but it's not going to be okay. It's not okay before him. And then verses 30 and 31, Job says, even if I cleansed myself, even if I could find something that there was wrong with me and I cleansed myself with lie and I washed myself clean, he says it wouldn't matter because God has chosen to condemn me. He has decreed me to be guilty no matter what I do. And his finale then, and I think is a very powerful thought in this section, is to say, I need an arbiter. I need a mediator. Since I can't approach God and I cannot make my appeal before him, I need an arbiter. I need someone to be able to make my appeal through to be able to state my case before God. Chapter 10, we don't have time to read it, but I just want you to notice in chapter 10, like at the beginning of verse 1, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of, of my soul. He now returns to lament. And that's what you see Job do is often what he will do is he will first address his friend and say, here's what you've said, but here's my disagreement. And then the next chapter, he'll turn and say, now here's my lament to God. Here is my wailing about it. So verse one, I hate my life. And he doesn't understand why he's accused by God. You see what retribution theology does is it says, well, I'm suffering like this. So I've done something wrong, but I don't know what I've done wrong. So God, why are you accusing me? I think I'm righteous and I think I'm blameless. So this is the confusion that Job is going through. I've been right. I've been good. I've been blameless. I've followed you so why am i suffering this way so he continues to maintain his innocence and he pleads to god please remember that i am just dust he continues to say i'm not going to make it much longer i'm just dust i'm not strong i'm not stones i'm not bronze i can't handle much more of this because he feels condemned by god he feels attacked by god and as he said to eliphaz he says to bildad here I wish that God would just leave me alone. We saw that with Eliphaz where he says what God is is like the the police officer who pulls you over for going 56 and a 55. He scrutinizes too much. And that's what Job is saying here. Just stop looking at me, God. Stop scrutinizing my life because I've been too much pain. Just stop attacking me and let me die is how chapter 10 ends. Just let me be in all of this. So for tonight, I want to just spend time then in one Final message, because one of the observations that Job makes in this is extremely powerful. It's extremely useful for us to consider our place before God and the things that that he says in describing this. I think it is interesting that the whole of Job's message is basically no one can stand before God. 
I cannot make an appeal before God. I have no way to stand before him. I have no way to to bring any kind of complaint before him. No one can stand in his presence because God is too mighty. God is too immense and, and no one is able to do so. And it, it and here's what's interesting is Job who God said is blameless and upright, fears God in terms from evil. And Job is recognizing it doesn't matter how blameless I am. It is still too frightening of a proposition to stand before God. Even as right and blameless as he is, as good as his life may be. He says, even still in all of that, I cannot stand before God. And we see this truth pictured an awful lot of times in the scriptures where God is constantly trying to communicate to us. You and I cannot stand before God. And often I don't think we have a very good awareness of that. I think we have this idea, you know, you'll have people talk about, well, the day of judgment, I'll just tell God, you know, here's the way it is. And, you know, the books will open and I'll just give my explanation about things and I'll just tell them all these things. Look at what the scriptures say about what happens when you're even in the likeness of the glory of the presence of God and not even in his full-blown appearance. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Here's Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Here in this vision that Isaiah has, he's immediately aware of his own sin and the sin of the people. Ezekiel, amazing throne room scene. Another vision, not even actually in the presence of God, but just a vision of the throne of God. Ezekiel 1, perhaps one of the most inexplicable texts there are in trying to wrap your mind around what you are seeing in this vision scene of God and wheels and wheels and eyes all around and how it moves and all of that. And Ezekiel sees it all And his response is not words. His response is just simply fall on my face. John the Apostle, he sees a vision of Jesus. He sees a vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1. His only response is to fall as dead. One of the things that the scriptures are always picturing for us is that there is the need for a mediator we need someone to go into the presence of God from the very beginning of Israel's history you see that when Israel crosses the Red Sea and comes to the mountain God tells Moses you get the people ready because I'm going to come down and remember what he tells them nobody can come near Not even the animals. Nobody come near this mountain because I am going to come down at this mountain. And so you stay back. And so you have constantly God underlining this idea that you need a mediator before God. Moses would would function in, in that way to be able to go up before God and receive the law and come down and speak to the people and then hear what the people are saying and go back up before God. But even beyond that, Think about what the whole scene is given to us is that God is always understanding that you need this mediator and he gives it to them. This is the whole function of the tabernacle, the temple. What does God give them but a high priest? And the high priest's function is to do that very thing. God goes, okay, I want you to recognize you can't come near me there at Sinai. And then he gives the law. 
And he says, now when you have this tabernacle, you're going to need a high priest. You're going to need somebody to be able to be the go-between. The mediator is going to come in before me. Remember the high priest, one time a year, was able to go into the Holy of Holies. And once he had been cleansed and had the, the blood that was for the people and for himself, he's allowed to walk in to that very scene of where the presence of God was. And to be able to sprinkle them blood upon that mercy seat, upon the Ark of the Covenant, to indicate that. And so God is picturing that and picturing that of you just can't come into the presence of God. You don't just come walking in. You don't just come in how you like. You don't talk to him how you please. That God is a powerful, holy God. And here is Job understanding that in all of his innocence and all of his blamelessness and all of his righteousness. That here is Job saying, even as clean as I am, I need somebody to be my advocate. I need somebody to make an appeal on my behalf. Someone who will go before God and present my case. All of that imagery is fascinating because the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, and if we had another 30 minutes, we could all study chapter 9, just go home and read it. But in Hebrews chapter 9, that chapter is taking all of that imagery about the, the tabernacle and about that scene of the necessity of a high priest And he brings it forward and says, now Jesus is your high priest that purifies your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Here's a picture of, I know you need a high priest and God gives you the mediator, the high priest that you need. And what the writer of Hebrews spends his time talking about is, I gave you such a one so that he would come in before me so that he could grant to you eternal life. In fact, a few verses later, it says that Jesus appears in the presence of God on our behalf. This is what we need. And this is, I think, the most shocking thing about this scene in in this is that God could just indicate again and again You can't come into my presence. You can't come into my presence. I'm too mighty. I'm too great. I'm too excellent. I'm too holy. But what he constantly did was then turn around and create, here's a mediator so that you can access my presence. And he does that in the Old Testament with the high priesthood. And then he comes forward in the New Testament, all of that symbolizing a great high priest in Christ so that Jesus makes what is impossible now possible. This is what is the power of what Hebrews 4 verse 16 is trying to say. Is that Jesus is the mediator that you and I need so that we do have access to God. So that we can boldly and with confidence come into the presence of God to find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. The shocking thing that God does, he says, okay, you can't come into my presence because I'm too great. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it possible so that you can access me and actually confidently come into my presence and ask whatever you like and receive mercy and grace in to help you in your time of need because I have given you the ultimate mediator Christ and what's so cool is Job is here just aware of that going I need somebody to be my go-between I need somebody to make my case I need somebody to be my advocate 
And that's why you get like First John chapter 2 and the first three verses there's pictures Jesus as our advocate who is our propitiation who goes before God on our behalf because we have no place to stand before Him. But because of Jesus, now we can come into the throne room of grace. This is to be an immense help in trial and suffering is to know that you do have the access to come before God because Jesus has made that possible. Now you can boldly, as we read that and go, how can you boldly come into the throne of God? Everybody up to this point is falling down as dead when they even just saw a vision of the throne of God. Because Christ has died for sins. And now you can boldly access God. Now you have the go-between that you need, that you can make your appeal before God, that you can say before God, I need help, I need grace, I need mercy, I need strength, I need your encouragement, I need all of these things because look at what I'm going through and this is what I need and God can hear those things because we have that wonderful access because of Him. This is the whole point of what the writer of Hebrews is doing there in chapter 9 and talking about why we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, why we have someone who did not walk into the shadows of things but walked into the very temple throne room of God Himself with His own blood so that the temple veil could be torn and here we are standing before God in His very presence. This is amazing that God has done this. God did that for us. And so we look at that and go... God does not say, now here's all the things you need to do. God goes, I'll take care of the problem. I wanted to communicate the problem to you. I am a great, mighty God that you cannot access. But I will solve the access problem by giving you my son so that you can come into the throne room of grace. And he is the help that we need through suffering and trial. I love that Job grasped that. I think it's one of the amazing things that he understands and one of the amazing things that he sees we need a go-between. We need somebody to stand for on our behalf before God. And you can't get a better go-between, a better stand-in on our behalf, a better advocate than Jesus, Amen. who has walked in our shoes, who has been tempted as we have yet without sin, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tempted and tested in every way just like us, and now stands before God on our behalf. Let that be a great source of encouragement to you in your time of difficulty and suffering. We're going to sing a song and we invite you now to come to Jesus because he is our great high priest. He is our great mediator that allows us to have access to God. Consider what a valuable, valuable thing it is to have a relationship with your God through Jesus Christ that through him, we can now stand before Him and that we can be clean in His sight, forgiven of our sins, the hope of eternal life. It's all available to us. If we'll turn away from our sins, believe that Jesus is the Son of God and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you come and do that now while we stand and while we